but I really believe that advanced skiers don't want to ski on groomed runs or beginner runs. They want the best, most interesting terrain. And the Midwest lacked expert sustained vertical terrain in the five-state region. And I really believed it was a matter of time we'd get there. The first years were tough. There would be days on Tuesdays and Wednesdays where the lift would be running without people. And some people in the industry would say, hey, Lonnie, when are you going to like realize this isn't going to work? And I'd say, you know what? We're just going to stick it out and we're going to keep promoting our brand. We're going to live and die with the advanced and expert skiers because that's the niche that we dominate anybody in the Midwest. And that's why we're special. And that's why we're here. And we just got to keep plugging away. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Unless you've skied Mount Bohemia, you have never skied anything like Mount Bohemia. And you are going to find out why today. Before we get to that, do yourself a favor and pop over to stormskiing.com and sign up for the Storm Skiing newsletter. If you're new to the podcast, if you just found it as part of the Boho Mafia, I'm glad to have you, but the podcast is only a small part of the storm. The heart of this whole operation is the email newsletter, where we are analyzing lift serve skiing all year round. It's time to stop getting your ski news from Facebook and instead join the thousands of skiers on the Storm's email list. That is also the fastest way to get new podcasts, and the article that accompanies each episode includes extensive additional context that enriches the conversation you're about to hear. You can also follow the Storm on Instagram or Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. Okay, let's talk about a service that I use every single day of the winter open snow. I live within a five hour drive of approximately 150 ski areas. That means I have a lot of options. So when I plan my ski days, I want to know what's firing and I want to know in advance. Can I get away with a two hour run to the Catskills or the Poconos? Is Berkshire East the spot today? Or is it Gore? Or do I have to haul my butt out of bed at 4 a.m to catch turns in Northern Vermont or Western New York. It's more than I can sort through myself, frankly. That's why I use open snow. Outlooks from multiple weather forecasting models, updated hourly, resort by resort snow outlooks, and one of my favorite features, frequent email updates focused on the region of your choice. For me, I rock the Mid-Atlantic, New England, and all US emails but you can choose from more than two dozen daily snows, focused on regions as varied as British Columbia, Colorado, Southern California, or Idaho, or on specific mega resorts such as Jackson Hole or Mammoth. Open Snow is now a partner of the storm, but I have used the service for years, and now you can too. Test drive Open Snow's best features with a free 60-day trial including 10-day snow forecasts for your favorite ski resorts, high-resolution weather maps, expert analysis, and much more by visiting opensnow.com backslash stormskiing. That's opensnow.com backslash stormskiing. All right, one more partner to tell you about, Mountain Gazette. What is Mountain Gazette? Well, it's a skiing magazine but it is also a climbing, backpacking, trekking, fishing, and running magazine. 
and it goes on, ranging widely in, over, and through the mountains, and digging deeply into mountain subjects of all kinds. A given issue can cover everything, from mountain play to mountain people, politics, culture, trends, travel, and the environment. There are also some subjects in Mountain Gazette's pages that defy categorization. There are more than a few surprises, news reviews, and many unusual side trips into the most remote corners of the world's highest places. All of them presented with a humor, freshness, vitality, and originality that have both won and lost the magazine friends, but rarely left readers feeling lukewarm about them. But don't take our word for it. Go to mountaingazette.com to lock in your subscription today. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 102, Lonnie Gleiberman, owner, founder, and president of Mount Bohemia, Michigan. There is nothing like Mount Bohemia. There's nothing like it in the East. There's nothing like it in the West. There's nothing like it in Canada. And there's certainly nothing else like it in the Midwest. This is the ski area we all think we'd build if we built our own ski area. No green runs, no grooming, no snowmaking, no beginners allowed, just straight down savage terrain. Bohemia is remote, improbable, and glorious. Everything about it is an anomaly. What is this wild ski area hanging off a peninsula in the middle of Lake Superior? where they ski into May on all-natural snow, where the vertical drop touches 900 feet in a state where no other ski area exceeds 640, where a season pass is $99 and acts as a passport to independent ski areas all over the country, where an unbelievable lake-effect snow train can push months-long storm cycles and more than 300 inches of snow per year. The only thing close to Boho in America is Silverton, Colorado, but Bohemia is something different. Silverton is big, exposed, expected, a monster in Rocky Mountain Avalanche country. Bohemia is funky and raw, a sheer surprise hiding out at the top of America, a zone of extremes where you'd least expect it. That this fascinating place is the masterwork of a fascinating character is the only thing unsurprising about Mount Bohemia. I've had this one on my list since the day I dreamed up the storm. Let's do it. My guest today is the owner, founder, and president of Mount Bohemia, Michigan. Opened in 2000, Bohemia is one of the most unique ski areas in America, with no beginner terrain, no grooming, no snowmaking, and no ski school. The ski area's 900-foot vertical drop and 273 inches of average annual snowfall are both tops in the Midwest. He has also served as president of several Canadian football league teams and ran Michigan's Porcupine Mountains ski area for several years. Lonnie Gleiberman is my guest. Lonnie, I am so pumped to talk some Bohemia today. Welcome to the storm. How is life in the UP today? It's good. You know, we got a little bit of sunny weather. We had some snow earlier in the week, but uh, we, 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 we kind of don't want snow in October. We got things to get ready for and snow in October never lasts, so we're ready to move to winter season, hopefully by the end of November. I did see that Big Powderhorn and Mount Zion both posted what looked like at least a foot of snow. How much did you get at Bohemia? 
we don't get a lot of snow in October. The lake is too warm. You know, the benefit of being around it, surrounded by the lake on all sides is it, it, it gets you more lake effect snow, but early season, like October, early November, we usually get rain because we're just too close to the lake and we're just one or two degrees warmer than those guys. But once December hits, we get the big numbers. How much snow do you actually need to open Bohemia? Because I, I want the listeners to appreciate this. This is not your average Midwestern ski area that's built mostly on a dirt hill. You have this rocky terrain of the sort that you might find in more, more mountainous regions. What is the base that you would need to open Bohemia on a typical year? We usually need about 60 to 70 inches of snow. Wow. Okay, and so you know that's not base, that's snowfall. But of that, we need some wet snow to help pack it. And so we need some system snow or storm snow. And, you know, it gets us there. But five feet, you know, reality is we can get five feet in December in a matter of four days. So the mm-hmm. lake, when the lake's wide open and the cold air is coming over the lake, it can dump that. So it's just a matter of getting us cold air and we can rapidly do it. But, yeah, we do need about five feet uh, of snow, maybe six to get things uh, rolling. All right. I do want to get a, a lot more into Bohemia in a minute here, but let's rewind here, Lonnie, because I think you have a really interesting story. It's pretty unique for the ski business. Where did you grow up? Did you grow up in a ski family? Did not. I mean, my family skied, but we weren't like, you know, my family, my family skied, but we weren't like a, we weren't in the ski business, of course. Lived down in uh, Detroit area and um, went to Michigan State. And uh, from there, I went into a totally different field of, of work and um, then ended up in the ski business later on. Where did you grow up skiing? Did you ski the, the Southeast Michigan areas, Pine Knob, Alpine Valley, Mount Holly, or did you come up to the Boynes? What, what would you hit as a kid? So we, we skied, you know, Alpine Valley, Pine Knob, Mount Holly, right? And we went to Boyne and Nubs. I did ski Sugarloaf before it closed. It's mm-hmm. too bad it's gone. That was a great mm-hmm. place. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, we went out west a few times. And um, I skied in Switzerland twice when I was in high school. And that's kind of, you know, and then, of course, Lake Tahoe, but mainly Michigan. And mainly, um, you know, besides Detroit area ski areas, Boyne and Nubs Knob. Gosh, it's so interesting you bring up Sugarloaf. That is, to me, one of the tragedies of Michigan skiing because there's only about a half dozen largish ski areas in the lower peninsula of Michigan. You have Boyne, Boyne Highlands, Nubs Knob, uh, Crystal, Caberfay, Shanty Creek. Sugarloaf was that seventh. Looking at it from an industry point of view, it, it kind of seems like it's too far gone now, but do you think it was inevitable the Sugarloaf closed or do you think it was mismanaged? What's your take on Sugarloaf? Well, I think, you know, it's funny you speak about Sugarloaf. It, 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 it brings up a warning sign to us when we built Bohemia. We'll get into that later. But one must learn from history and not to bring up politics, but Vladimir Putin obviously missed uh, the Waterloo story of Napoleon and, and Hitler's invasion of Russia. Um, you know, you always want to learn from the good things that, that happen in your business, but also from the bad. And I think Sugarloaf, try to do too many things and it was never going to be the volume of Boyne. Um, but it had its niche and it, and it was a good place and, you know, an airport runway, a tennis barn, a convention center. These were all things that kind of buried Sugarloaf. So I'd say less mismanagement and more misdirection of capital improvements and not understanding that, look, you're not going to compete with Boyne mountain or Boyne islands, but, you can be a very profitable ski resort 25 minutes from Traverse City and three hours from Grand Rapids if you just play your cards right. 
you know, I'll, I'll get into this a little more later, but you did manage Porcupine Mountains for a little bit. Did you ever consider, because Sugarloaf has changed hands, the property that it sits on has changed hands many times. Have you ever considered making a run at that and trying to re- revitalize that ski area? No. <laughs> I mean, it, it, <laughs> the reality is, is you've got Crystal Mountain that's phenomenal. You've got Boyne, Boyne Highlands, Nubs Knob, and, and, and Shandy Creek, Shush Mountain, all well-established now. Um the time for Sugarloaf to have made the right moves was in the eighties today. It's too far behind the other ones to ever catch up and too much has been sold off property wise. Um, no, the answer is no. So you have a really good perspective on the ski industry now and what works and what doesn't. But as you said, you took a different career path to start out with you. You graduated from Michigan state and, and where did you go then? I ended up in Ottawa, Canada. Um, running a Canadian football league team, um, which is a totally different field, obviously. What, what took you to the CFL and what was your experience like there? Yeah. So basically, you know, the, the Toronto Argonauts got bought by Bruce McNall, John Candy and Wayne Gretzky. And they were looking to expand the CFL in the United States. And I'm like, Hey, this is a really good opportunity because there is room for two football leagues, even though the XFL has failed twice. And, you know, NBC couldn't pull it off, but there is room for two leagues. And I do think the third time of the XFL with the rock and Redbird capital will work. But anyways, so we end up in Ottawa with an option to own the Detroit franchise when the CFL goes South Mm -hmm. with expansion. And so we bought Ottawa uh, because the league was on the upswing. So we thought they'd signed rocket Ishmael to a four million dollar a year contract which at the time was the highest paid football player in pro football so Mm -hmm. the cfl was was looking to make real inroads and we looked at it and the cfl looked at itself as the southwest airlines of football the southwest airlines had a very unique business plan that of course works because you can do a lot of the same things as delta but you can do a lot of them at a much lower cost and there's a lot of markets in the United States, they could support uh, pro football. They don't have teams. And there also are markets that have NFL that could support a CFL team. But the dilemma was, you know, it, it didn't quite work out, of course. That's why I'm in the ski business. But there was tremendous opportunity, and that's why we were there. So you were in Ottawa, and at some point you made your way down to Shreveport. Just talk about your your CFL journey and, and, and why you bounced around and – Kind of how that went for you and, and what went well and what didn't work out. Yeah, I mean, you know, what went well is you learned a lot about how to sell season tickets, which can later be used in ski resort world. Um, you know, you learned a lot. I mean, you're, you're around people like in the league. There was people like Fred Smith, the founder of FedEx. There was Art Williams, founder of Prime American Insurance. So here I am, a guy in my 20s, and I'm listening to people who are really the best of the best in North American business. Mm-hmm. And so I absorbed a lot of things They helped me later on, but the things that didn't go well in the CFL was that, you know, we're, we, we didn't quite realize how much money you need to compete against the national football league. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, it just wasn't properly thought through um, in how long it was going to take for the American teams to succeed. You know, we all thought the American teams would be breaking even in three years. The reality was they lost a hundred million. The American teams combined lost a hundred million dollars in three years. So um, there was real challenges. 
but we came really close to getting a, a network TV deal with CBS Sports. Mm -hmm. um, CBS had lost the NFL back in the early 90s, and the CFL was making headway to get a network TV deal. If that had come through, there would be no, there, I wouldn't be at Mount Bohemia. We'd be down in Louisiana playing football and the CFL would be on network TV. But unfortunately um, the NFL brought CBS back. The NFL went into Baltimore, which was one of our key teams and CFL American expansion sadly, uh, sadly expired. Well, the, the loss of the CFL was to the benefit of skiers everywhere because what you ended up founding at Mount Bohemia is, I'll, I'll, I'll say this on the record, it is the most unique ski area in the United States. And, and I really don't think it's close. There's, there's nothing else that's quite like it. If out here in the East, we have Mad River Glen. And this is the wild ski area, it has the single chair. Their motto is ski it if you can, but they still have snowmaking, they still have grooming. What you've set up at Mount Bohemia is this totally wild concept that was completely unproven at the time you did it. So, so let's get into Bohemia and, and how you ended up founding this. So take us into this. Ultimately, you leave the CFL, you go to grad school. How did you get the idea for Mount Bohemia? And how did you go about taking the risk of actually making it real and opening the ski area? So I'm kind of, you know, the CFL, I thought the CFL was, going to go on forever we thought this is all going to work and everyone was optimistic and it didn't work out so i'm kind of wondering like what i'm gonna do with my next career and all that and i'm i'm out in colorado i've been listening to a, a a book on tape called the 22 immutable laws of branding by l reese it's a great book by the way mm -hmm. and in it it says narrow your focus strengthen your brand and I realized in the CFL, we were always shotgun approach. Everybody's our customer versus, hey, let's target our real customers. And it's like that, that line of Ferrari, you can picture in your head, Chevrolet, Chevrolet means what? You know, is it a big car, small car, fast car, cheap car? So that book, 22 Immutable Laws of Branding, really struck a chord with me that narrow the focus, you strengthen your brand. And I'm out in Colorado and I end up on a chairlift. You know, you talk to people and where are you from? And this guy's from Michigan. And he says, hey, I'm from Michigan too. And he goes, hey, he tells me, did they ever build that big ski resort near in the UP near Copper Harbor? And I'm like, what, what's it called? He says, he didn't even know the name. And this is 1998. So there's really no Google. And of course, your phone doesn't have the ability to look up stuff. <laughs> so I have to get back. I'm kind of curious, like, what is this place? He said, we've been the biggest ski resort in the Midwest and blankety blank, but he didn't know the name. And he, I said, I assume it didn't get built. Mm -hmm. so I go into a Barnes and Noble back when they had Barnes and Nobles. <laughs> and I went in there and I got a book on the UP. Um, it was Mary Hunt's guide to um, the UP. And I'm scrolling through it and I get to Copper Harbor. And then I see this town Lock LaBelle and it says at the base of Mount you know, this town's at the base of Mount Bohemia, a proposed mm -hmm. ski resort. I figured that must be it. So I call up um, this restaurant in Copper Harbor. They tell me to call the timber company. And that's how it started. But basically, Bohemia had the best expert terrain in the Midwest. By far, it was the biggest mountain. But it didn't have beginner terrain. Mm -hmm. And back to that book, 22 Immutable Laws of Branding, I'm like, why can't you just build a ski resort 
It just targets one demographic. I mean, Ferrari does pretty good without building four-seat cars, right? They're not building cars for soccer moms. They're building cars for guys that want cool, fast cars that seat two people. So I'm like, so that that's where the process started. But the background was I came out of a business where I failed. And, and it, it, it felt miserable when the U.S. teams all closed down. The CFL shut all the American teams down at once. Memphis, Baltimore, Shreveport, Birmingham, San Antonio. And it, it, you, you fail pretty publicly. I mean, you, you fail in pro football, like it's in the paper. It's like everybody knows that you were a failure. So this next thing was, hey, I can build this ski resort by narrowing the focus and keeping it really simple, really simple, because we were too complicated in that league, too many different price points. And I'm like, now we can start with a new canvas and follow that book's lead about being a, a, a niche or a category killer for expert advanced skiers in the Midwest. So you call this restaurant, you confirm the ski area's existence. What's your next move? Do you travel up to the Keweenaw and check yeah. it out for yourself? Just t- take us through this. Yeah, so we, we get a hold of the timber, the, the company that owns the land, which is Champion Paper Company. We mm-hmm. go up there, we meet with them. They had, they had studied it for years. They had tons of books. Um, and it never got built because they were trying to build out a full-scale ski resort a la Sugarloaf, let's say, what they tried to do. And it's too far away to be a Boyne Highlands or a um, Stowe, Vermont or a Vale. It's, it's, it's great at what it does. Mm-hmm. Using the Ferrari example, Ferrari is never going to sell 200,000 cars in America. And, and they would also ruin their brand. They know that. So we're like, why don't we build a ski resort, narrow the focus, but build its overhead based on its demand. And that's the difference of what happened to Sugarloaf versus what happened to Bohemia. So we'll talk about the infrastructure and how you built it up in a moment. Just from a skiing point of view, take us into your head when you first went up there. Were you familiar with the key when I had you been up there? And, and what were you thinking when you first toured this hill and imagined the potential of what this could be as a commercial ski area? Yeah, so I, I've been to the Cuban only once in my life when I was very little in the summer, so I do virtually nothing about it. Um, I'd never been to Lock LaBelle, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I really realized how amazing it was, was when I skied it with one of the key, who were, the guy who created our backcountry, Steve Rowe, Mm-hmm. Um, Steve was an ER doctor in town. He'd been skiing Bohemia for years. He'd been building backcountry runs in the mountain for years. And he took me skiing there. And I'm like, wow, this does ski different. It's not just the size, it's the pitch. This mm-hmm. place skis like a section of the Rocky Mountains. And that's what made Bohemia special. It also created the problem for previous people looking to build it because it lacks beginner and middle intermediate terrain it just doesn't have that but if you ignore those people and just target the advanced and experts you've got a phenomenal place to go so with those people in mind the advanced the expert skiers you go up there ski around a little bit i imagine you have to come up with okay what's the minimum viable product because we we have seen uphill only ski areas they opened one recently in colorado bluebird backcountry so I, I don't know if that's something you considered, but 
starting from the premise that, okay, if you're going to have a commercial skier, you need some kind of a lift. What else did you need? And, and did you consider uphill only or, or did you say, okay, we need to, we, we need, you know, we need an office to sell tickets. We need uh, somewhere to sell beer. We need, you know, we, we need a lift. What, what was your sort of minimum viable product and how did you go about getting all that into place over the next couple of years? Yeah, so we, we, we didn't consider uphill traffic, even though I think Bluebird, we just didn't think of it. Bluebird backcountry is a phenomenal concept. And I think you're going to see more of those places popping up around the country because I, I think those guys, you know, hit a really cool, cool niche. But no, we didn't, we, did, we just never thought of it. Um, so we thought we needed, you know, a couple chairlifts, basic base area. Lodging would come later, but you need lodging. But lodging would come later, get the place open. The key thing we was, we needed, we needed to have enough terrain even in the first year that a skier could be there for two or three days and not get bored of skiing the same runs. That was the most important thing was terrain, terrain, terrain. So you, you needed a lift. How did you go about getting a lift? Um, we um, used some consultants who helped us find uh, lifts that were up in Canada and those lifts were transported to Michigan and then they were installed in the summer of 2000. And where did you get them from? Uh, it was a place um, near Ontario. Uh, I'm forgetting the name of that place right now, but um, it's one of the private ski areas in, in up in Ontario, Quebec area. So I just it's not hitting me right now, but it's it's one of those places up there. But it's it's a private one that you don't really hear about. Yeah, Georgian Peaks, right? That yeah, that that is it actually. I, I don't know. If, I'm sure they're still around. But I've not. Um, I've never been there, but. Um, they had a good history of maintaining their lifts, and so they they were a good spot. And so they had lifts coming out, so it was perfect timing. And we didn't consider the buses until later. And that, that's one of those ideas that kind of happens by accident, but worked out extremely well. So had you ever worked at a ski area before, Lonnie? No, no. My, my I was truly a, a foot been working in football. So I I come in with like no background in the ski industry, and, I, and we look we made a lot of first year mistakes. You're going to make. But the one advantage I had was I came and I'll call it cross-pollination in that I came from a totally different world. And so I could bring ideas that a lot of people in the ski world had never experienced. Like season pass sales are the lifeblood of football teams and NBA teams, et cetera. Nobody in pro sports is making any money if they're relying mostly on walk. You just don't do that. So I was kind of surprised at how little effort was made to sell season passes compared to day tickets. And so one of the things, as you know, by our third year, we go into the $99 season pass sale because season pass sales, and now you see it now with Vail and Icon, the world is going to a season pass product dominating over the dailies. But back in 2000, the ski industry was very antiquated when it came to um, season pass sales. So you had some new ideas and some business experience that allowed you to take Bohemia in a different direction to get that ski side. Did you, did you have someone to lean on? Did you bring in a right-hand guy to, you know, to help with the lifts and the operations piece of this? So we hired Snow Engineering, which is a premier planning company to design the trails. Um, we had Steve Rowe design and develop all the backcountry trails because Steve knew that better than anybody. And then um, we used various different people throughout the years. Jim Bartlett from Nubs Knob was instrumental in, 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 co in countless hours 
um, of advice and stuff that he gave us our, our years of advice because he had been it. So yeah, I reached out to people that knew the business because I didn't. And so there was lots of people that we talked to um, whenever I was at a, NS, a national ski association show, whoever would talk to me, I would talk to them. They, they probably thought I was a kook and, and look, maybe I am a kook, but I mean, I was, I was going to get as much information I can out of whoever would talk to me. So what, what was the process of putting that first lift in? Like, well, we had <laughs> the community decides they don't want this, which, which oh, no. we were surprised in 98, there was no opposition in 99. There was no opposition in 2000, right. When we're getting ready to go for the official permits, hundreds of people turn out at a public session saying they don't want the zoning changed. And, and we were caught totally off guard. Um, at this point, I believe we already owned the chairlift. So there's no turning back. And these people were pissed that a ski resort was going in. I, I still to this day don't know why they were mad, but, um, but I'm like, you know what, you know what? I've already failed in CFL twice. I, I'm not backing down on this one. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, you know, the problem with the CFL, the league is constantly politically correct. It constantly takes the softest way to deal with problems. And that's why the CFL sadly is still muddling its way through versus being a real competitor to the national football league which it used to be back in the 60s and 70s and so i'm like you know we're not going to back down i told the folks we'd love to work with them but we're not going to not build it because they don't want it that's just not how it works you know this is a capitalist world and it's good for your community anyways Mm -hmm. so we had to have a referendum on the ski resort Mm -hmm. and we built the chairlifts and we built the trails on pure risk that we're going to win the referendum but Mm -hmm. I believe we would, we would win the referendum and, and a guy that I worked with in football, Forrest Gregg, who was a Packers NFL hall of famer, one of their greatest players of all time. And he coached with us in Shreveport and he also um, was NFL coach of the year twice. So he's kind of a great legend. Well, here we are, he and I are knocking on doors in upper peninsula mm-hmm. trying to convince voters to vote for Mopohemia in the referendum well, luckily, Forrest is a hero as a Packer to the Upers because people in the UP love the Green Bay Packers more than they like the Detroit Lions. Mm-hmm. So that's one time where football really helped me because we won that referendum. And a big part of it might have been because Forrest Gregg was out there helping me talk to the citizens. And they were just honored and amazed they got to meet Forrest Gregg, one of the, as I said, one of the greatest Packers and NFL players of all time. So 22 years later, Lonnie, you know, taking that long view, the folks, sometimes there's a fear of the unknown. What is the community's perception or relationship like with Mount Bohemia today? Those locals that opposed it 22 years ago. So majority of the community, and let me keep in mind, the the vocal minority didn't want us to build it. But the reality is we won the election. I think we got 58% of the votes. We won 58 to 42. So we won pretty handily. Mm-hmm. Um, majority of the people really like us. There are still a group of people that want to fight us. <laughs> and, and the reality is, is the nice thing about working in Canadian football league or pro football is coaches teach you to always be three steps ahead of your opponent. Mm-hmm. So we see Tom Brady going up to the line of scrimmage. Tom Brady already knows if the defense is this way, he's going to call this play. If the defense is this way, he's going to audible to that play. That's why Tom Brady's still a great quarterback and still playing. So the 
problem with the opponents is they still want to fight Mount Bohemia and they've never realized that we're always going to be three or four steps ahead because we always anticipate what they're going to do to us. And we would love to work with them and we're, we're a positive thing, but there's still a little hotbed of animosity at the ski resorts there. But we always would say to them, here's an olive branch. Come sit with us. Let's talk about what your worries are. Let's work together. But if you don't want to work together, we'll beat you. You have a choice. And, and life goes on. So, so what are those, that vocal minority, what are they opposed to? Do they want the mountain to just be for the squirrels? Do they not like the traffic? Like, what is their philosophical opposition to Mount Bohemia to this day? We're, we're really not sure. We've always offered to sit down with them in person. And to this day, the main opponents have refused to ever sit with me in a room so we could actually talk about what the animosity is. I don't actually know. I mean, others that support it, support me, tell me they don't want more people in the area. So that's probably the most likely scenario is they don't want more people coming into their, their area because they're also against the mountain. I mean, we clarify the same people that oppose Mount Bohemia also don't like the mountain bikers. So we can extrapolate mm -hmm. that probably they don't want younger men who like to do outdoor adventure in their communities, my guess. All right. So it, it sounds like that's something that has been an ongoing conversation or, or, a, or lack of conversation for a long time. And, and that's there and you found a way to deal with it. Curious about the reaction from the industry when you first proposed Mount Bohemia. If you look at Michigan, has the second most scariest of any state behind New York, right around 40 active, depending on what you count and, and what what gets enough snow and what year to turn on. But they're, they all kind of run on a template. They have mostly groomed slopes, a lot of lifts, a lot of beginner terrain, some slope side condos. Bohemia was just this completely different thing. What was the reaction like from the industry, both in Michigan and nationally, when those lifts started going up the side of Mount Bohemia? I do know that, that our folks in the Western UP, the folks that owned Indian Head, back then, not now, but back then, mm -hmm. I know they basically laughed at us and said, we wouldn't make it past two seasons. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they truly say, and, and let's keep in mind the first couple of years, it was pretty dead, but I mm -hmm. know that those folks at Indian head that owned it back in the early two thousands and their management just laughed. They would see us at ski shows and they would laugh at our business concept and, and all that. And, uh, and, and most ski resorts, I believe, whether they said to me or not, believe that, of course, this was the most stupidest thing. And in fact, one guy did say to me, he said, you know, you actually have created the stupidest ski resort of all time. And I said, yeah. well, you know, I think differently. We'll see how it plays out. And, you know, what I think that they didn't see, and I, I, I read a lot. I'm not smarter. My IQ is probably very average is my guess. But I read a lot. And I try and listen to things. And, and many times a trend is considered idiotic, like Uber, mm -hmm. like Netflix, before the blockbuster see the light. But then once it's once blockbuster sees the light, it the lights are over. And Kodak mm -hmm. missed digital cameras. So, you know, IBM thought no one needed a personal computer. Like, what's the Steve Jobs idiot doing? So <laughs> I had read a lot of history about, you know you know, industrial breakthroughs and things. So I thought, you know what? I really think that we're struggling 
because not enough people know about our product. But I really believe that advanced skiers don't want to ski on groomed runs or beginner runs. They don't care about that stuff. They want the best, most interesting terrain. And the Midwest lacked expert, advanced, sustained vertical terrain in the five-state region. And I really believed it was a matter of time we'd get there. you, you, You don't even know how true all that is, Lonnie, as far as, see, these skier eye operators were missing a, a key opinion. And that was the opinion of the skiers, because as someone who grew up skiing Michigan in the nineties, a lot of times I was bored to death because if you go back to the nineties in Michigan, the terrain parks were quote snowboard parks. Skiers weren't allowed in there where they did have them. No ski areas had marked glades until probably the late 90s. And I would go up to Searchmont a lot because they they had this sort of wild kind of terrain. And I would go visit my buddies at Michigan Tech, which which for the listeners is a big university, uh, about an hour, hour and a half south of Mount Bohemia. And sometimes we would go up and we would, there's a little ski area there called Mount Ripley, but we would go and we would, we would drive up and just explore. And I was like, my God, this is wild terrain someone could build a ski area up there and when you actually did it i couldn't believe that it was real and that somebody had actually had the stones and the vision to do it so it was this amazing thing it was much needed because we had this very bland ski industry in michigan and they've done a little better job since creating more balanced mountains but the truth is skiing in michigan for the most part is you still have to hunt for the good stuff right so so you you do this and you're a little bit ahead of your time. You opened in 2000. You said it took a little while to catch on. What was that first few years like at Mount Bohemia? And when did you finally start to get momentum? The first years were tough. I mean, the first years, I mean, there's days, I mean, we can laugh about it now, but there was days when I'd hear on the radio, it'd be like three o'clock, we closed at 4.30. And the guys would say, I think there's no one on the lifts. Should we shut down? I would say, no, guys, go because somebody might show up. So. You know, I mean, back then we had 75 season pass holders. We were doing the, the full price season pass. You know, we had like mm-hmm. virtually nobody. And um, there was year, I mean, I'm mean, serious, when there would be days on Tuesdays and Wednesdays where the lift would be running without people. And you, and, you know, you look at it, and some people in the industry would say, hey, Lonnie, like, you know, when are you going to like realize this isn't going to work? And, you know, there'd be brief moments of where you have a little bit of self doubt, but maybe for, hour or two and then you'd say no we're gonna get there and and i think that you know back to the cfl is i had already failed and i know the cfl would have made it had we been willing now keep in mind it'd be willing to spend our 400 million dollars but if the cfl had been willing to stick it out in the united states and suffer the enormous financial losses that were ahead for its owners the cfl would be a viable southwest airlines to the NFL, if it had stuck the course. And, and I use, and I'm, I know it's a ski podcast, but Major League Soccer lost a billion dollars. Wow. Turned it around. But today, those teams sell for $175 million, and CFL teams sell for $15 million. Mm. That is the difference. Major League Soccer stuck it out. They've got 32 teams. The CFL is stuck at nine. The same amount of teams they had in 1954. And Major League Soccer, I would look at their struggles 
And I'd say, those guys know they're going to get there. And I'd say, you know what? We're going to get there too. And we're just going to stick it out and we're going to keep promoting our brand. And we're not going to be out there grooming. We're not going to be putting in beginner runs. We're going to live and die with the advanced and expert skiers, because that's the niche that we dominate anybody in the Midwest. And that's why we're special. And that's why we're here. And we just got to keep plugging away. Okay, quick break, then back to Lonnie and Boho. I've got an awesome deal for you. Snowbound Expo is coming. After two years dormant, the former Boston Ski Show has been purchased by Raccoon Events and renamed Snowbound Expo. The show will offer a huge speaker lineup that includes Bode Miller, Conrad Anker, Dan Egan, Vasu Sujitra, Danny Reyes Acosta, Lindsay Fixmer, and more. You will also find sales on the latest gear, apparel, and resort passes. And you can try a dry ski slope and kick back with friends at the Opry Ski Mountain Bar. The show is November 18th to 20th at Boston Heinz Convention Center. Tickets are normally $15 per day, but Snowbound Expo is offering Storm listeners free tickets for the entire weekend. To claim your tickets, visit snowboundexpo.com and use Storm at checkout. I will be there doing a live podcast, and I hope to meet you in person. Was there a turning point, Lonnie? Was there a year where the word got out or there was a big snow year? When did Bohemia start to gel? Well, the, the first thing that happened is going into our fourth season, we're looking at Cedar Point, and Cedar Point runs a $99 season ticket. And mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, those Cedar Point guys are pretty smart, and I, I think they'll miss it. You know, following the amusement parks ticketing stuff is actually – those guys are pretty sharp, obviously. Disney, mm-hmm. Cedar Point, Six Flags. And I'm seeing Cedar Point doing this $99 ticket sale for the past couple summers. And I'm like, you know what? It, it costs 75 bucks a day to go to Cedar Point. Mm-hmm. But you buy a season ticket for 99 but they probably figure – that the amount of people that will commit to that, they might come five days and spend that much more money at their resort. So we, we dropped the ticket price down from $325 to $99, and we immediately sell 700 passes. Wow. So that gave, us some, that gave us hope that we're on the right trajectory. And then the big turning point was probably in 2000. And, well, there was, a, there was a big article in Skiing Magazine about the soul of skiing. We were in that. That was another big boost. So we're getting momentum. We're climbing now. Every year we're climbing pretty good. And then Powder Magazine, great guys to Bohemia, they uh, picked us as the number one place for powder skiing east of the Rockies. Mm. And that was the biggest thing that really catapulted us into momentum. That, That reached a lot of people who maybe didn't ski in the Midwest anymore, but lived in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And now we started to see numbers really start to grow. And then from there, the momentum just started to, started to, to pull away. So you, what does Bohemia look like today? You started out slow. You introduced the $99 pass a few years later. Paint a picture of your business for us, whatever metrics you, you're comfortable giving us today. Yeah, I mean, Bohemia now has lodging for 245 people. We're looking to double that in the next five to six years. Um, we've got two chairlifts. We're looking to modernize and replace at least the front side chairlift in the near future, add a chairlift off the backside in Haunted Valley. 
Um, we've added, since the opening year, we've added new sections called the Outer Limits Backcountry section. We've added the Middle Earth. These are all backcountry inbounds, backcountry areas. We've added a, a, another hill behind the parking lot called Little Boho. That's mm -hmm. also got a lot of fresh snow on powder days. We've added, um, we've doubled the size of the Haunted Valley. So we're, we're, we're over 600 acres now of skiable terrain. And we started out with probably about 200 acres, which was a decent amount, but we've mm -hmm. really quadrupled in size since opening day. And we also have a Nordic spa. You know, one of the things was, was to make it a fun place after skiing. And we added a Nordic spa, which is outdoor pools, cold pools, hot tubs, steam rooms, saunas, but nothing is ever as important as adding more and new terrain. And I, and I think you touched on it earlier. People miss that, you know, the Nordic spa is nice and having bars is nice and log cabins, but there's nothing that does more for our customers than adding more inbounds, gladed terrain. That's what we live for. It's what, it's what our purpose is. And I tell ski operators, more terrain is, is the oxygen to grow your ski resort. How many of those passes, those $99 passes, do you sell now? You sold 700 that first year. Yeah, we're at about 15,000. Wow. And our sales coming up this year in, um, in uh, starting November 23rd for 10 days. But yeah, we'll, we'll do about, we, we expect to do about the same this year, 15,000 roughly. And you have finally made the decision to bump the full season pass up $10 to one Oh nine. If you want to ski on Saturdays, the $99 pass no longer gets you access to Bohemia on Saturdays. Talk us through that decision and why it was time. You know, we looked at Costco. They never raised the price of their hot dog. And I respect those guys for that. And that's why we, we did that. We did not want to raise the price of the $99 pass, but you know, inflation, you know, our, our lifts run on diesel generators. So the diesel fuel doubled. Um, and also we, we have a lot of local people that could ski on Sundays or Fridays versus Saturdays. Mm -hmm. So why not give them an incentive to ski on a different, you know, skip Saturdays. So we have two price points. If you want to save a little bit of money, you can buy the $99 pass. If you want to ski every day, pay 109. And our hope there is just to knock the Saturday attendance down by say 10%. You know, it just helps to get a place less crowded on Saturdays. Saturdays are rapidly becoming the ski area, the ski industry's biggest problem in my opinion. And, and I think we need more creative solutions for reducing volume on Saturdays. What has the reaction been like so far, Lonnie? Have you seen a lot of grumbling or people like, all right, whatever, it's an extra 10 bucks. We, we've had really no, it's amazing, virtually no feedback, at all. no, no negative. Feedback. It probably gets priced too low for too long because you know, we've had literally no negative feedback from that one at all. It's just been quiet. So now maybe they didn't read the stuff close enough, but I, I think it's a non-issue to regular customers because the value is so good. But, you know, keep in mind, we got pass holders in Tennessee. So people go $99. Well, We've got people because of the unique terrain. We got people from West Virginia. We got people from Massachusetts. We got people from Tennessee and Kentucky. So they can only make like one trip. So let's you know, in fairness to them, they're not going to pay four hundred bucks for a season pass. Now we can get there, you know, one or two weekends of the year. So mm -hmm. the ninety nine dollars is very important to us, and we really, we really admire what Costco does and how Costco, even during inflation, would not raise the price of that hot dog and Pepsi. But so we kind of 
did raise it, but in one way we didn't because if you do, if you don't want to if you don't want to scan Saturdays, it's still ninety nine bucks. So how much should we read into that, Lonnie? Are, are you saying that your goal for as long as you have Bohemia is to keep that season pass at ninety nine dollars, some version of it? Yeah, pretty much. Break the fees down for us here. So you have a fourteen dollar processing fee, a twelve dollar spot access fee, an eight dollar usage fee. That's on the one year pass. Uh, what do all those fees go for, and why do you not just fold them into the price of the pass? Yeah, really, really good question. Um, so first off, we want the customer to realize that we do all of our sales, as you know, through the internet. So you only buy through the internet. So we hire, we have a company called Etix mm-hmm. that runs it for us. What's well, a third party site? We've got to pay that company because Bohemia's model is simplicity, low overhead. So we farm out accounting. We farm out the guys doing our ticket sales. We farm out um, our lodging to um, Onres. We farm all those things out in terms of we use third parties, you know, uh, ticketing companies to do that. Um, The spa fee, you know, the Nordic spa is expensive to run. Imagine it would be expensive to run a a spa in the wintertime outdoors. Mm -hmm. Um, So we give, instead of making everyone pay us $25 a day and fighting over, hey, you're sneaking into the Nordic spa, which what we did the first year, but like, let's make everybody free and charge them a, a flat fee of $12. And now it's good in the summer too. So it's good mm-hmm. there, summer and fall. So the value's there. And we're not constantly kicking people out of the Nordic spa for sneaking in. In fact, you'll see a Bohemia TV episode where these guys snuck in <laughs> to the Nordic spa and we were kicking them out. And that was a daily occurrence. Right. And we're, let's just do a flat fee for everybody and then be done with it. And so, it's a much discounted thing where they can use it for $12. And then there's also, you know, the people that get out, get out those partnership deals with us. Mm-hmm. We have to pay a sales staff to go out there and get us partner deals. So all those things are part of the cost of doing that. And at $99, we just can't absorb all those costs without charging some fees for Nordic spa reciprocals and the internet ticketing system. And if $99 is not low enough for you, there is a two-year option for $162. How many people take you up on that, Lonnie? You know, of the 15, only like a, I'm always amazed, only like a thousand. I would think that that would be the way to go. It's a better deal, but it tells you how price does drive decisions because two-year deal, it's a way better deal but it's 70 bucks more or 60, yes, 65 bucks more. Mm -hmm. But we only sell about 15% of our pass sales are going to be two-year pass holders. How about the lifetime pass? Last year, you brought this back, $1,299. This is a 75-year pass. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, you limited this to 100 passes last year. So why did you offer that and did you sell out? We we sold 91. We almost sold out. We didn't quite. But we, you know, we, we, we don't want to obviously sell unlimited of those. Um, so, you know, funny how cross-pollinization works. I was at Disney World with my girlfriend and her daughter, mm-hmm. and we're talking to the Disney timeshare people. And it's, mm-hmm. I like to like, you know, what, how do these guys do this? And, and they explained to me that if you buy a Disney family vacation club thing, you, it pays for itself in nine years. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and I'm like, wow. I said, okay, so how does that work for Disney? And she goes, well, if you if you do this, you're likely to bring us new customers because you already got you get this deal for you know you you get this free place to stay every year, and you're going to buy park passes, you're going to buy this. So the lifetime pass pays for itself in ten years, 
But Stuart, if I get you as a lifetime pass holder mm-hmm. and then you have kids, now your kids are probably going to ski with you. You're probably going to bring them to Bohemia because you have a lifetime pass. So the lifetime pass is a great deal for the customer, but also it means that Stuart or others will be coming back year after year after year, staying in our cabins, eating our food, buying our merchandise. So just like Disney makes money off the theme parks from all of its vacation club members, we're doing the same concept with the lifetime season pass. So you have a lot of different options and it, it sounds like you have folks taking you up on all these different ones. This used to be a one day sale and now it's around 10 days this year, 2022, it runs from November 23rd to December 3rd. Why did you just decide to extend the $99 season pass sale to that 10 day window from the one day? Great question. Um, I was adamant it was only going to be a one day sale. We're never going to change it. We're going to leave it the way it is. And then there was this one year, I want to say it was winter of 2014, 15. And, and we are getting a ton of snow in November. Mm-hmm. And we're, and the general manager, Vern Barber, um, who's been there for now nine years, does a phenomenal job running the place. We're talking about like, we, we could actually open for Thanksgiving, but past sales, not till the first Saturday in December. Right. So we get a headache on our hands and I'm like, you know what? Why don't we just sell it the Wednesday before Thanksgiving? Mm-hmm. And this year we'll just do it that way and that way. And then we end up not opening because it ended up while we had enough snow to open on, on the Tuesday by Thursday, they called for rain and then it froze mm-hmm. up as so we never opened up that Thanksgiving, but we noticed that it worked better. It gave you a little more time to get their friends involved. And so sales improved from that, but also it, it wasn't so touch and go that if we had a, a mistake, if the internet company had a hat, you know, had a problem, you know, we're not relying on just 24 hours of sales. We have a little more room for error, but we found that it worked better for everybody and um, we kept it. But if it wasn't for that one Thanksgiving of, of a ton of snow, we never would have actually tried it. So it looks like you used to sell season passes after the $99 sale for 300 and some dollars. It, it looks as though you may have stopped doing that. Is that the case? Have you stopped selling those outside of that 10 day window? We have because we... I mean, look, you know, knock on wood, we, if we sold 7,000, we would sell more, but we expect to sell in the 15,000 range. And that is, that is enough pass holders that it works in our business model. And also we just don't want to oversell the place. You know what happened out West last year. And it's just, there's, there's a point of, it's not fun anymore if you get too crowded. So we, we, we really do wrestle with, with the capacity needs. And so after the pass sales over, we don't even sell a Saturday day ticket until two o'clock in the wintertime. So if you don't buy a season pass, even if you stay with us, you are not going to get on the hill until 2 p.m. that day until and then we go to eight o'clock at night because of we want to protect our pass holders who are the lifeblood of our business. Do you think, Lonnie, that you'll reach a point where you limit the number of season passes, or can you envision a future for Mount Bohemia where you do not sell day lift tickets? Yeah, it's actually an excellent question. We have really wrestled with not selling day tickets. We have really wrestled with that concept. So many of our good customers every so often miss the sale. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's more of an emotion. You know, it's, and we do sell a lot of day passes, but we have wrestled with the concept of going 
season pass only. We have wrestled with the idea of capping the number. We have really done that. And we don't cap it right now because we just don't want to deal with the angry people who miss out. Mm -hmm. Um, It's more, it's being politically correct, unfortunately. But the reality is, I do think you're going to see a day, whether it's Mount Bohemia or, or it's Vale or somebody else, that's going to be season pass sales only. That's mm-hmm. Green Bay Packers, Michigan Wolverines football. You go down the road, you go down the, the line of, of, you know, a lot of sports teams. There's no extra tickets besides season ticket holders. There's nothing extra to sell. And those are your most successful sports teams, the ones that have every ticket sold before they start the season. So I do think the model of season pass holders only for some ski resorts is not that far off. And I want to make this point for the listeners, people who may have not have heard of Mount Bohemia before this, and they like what they're hearing and they think they want to make a stop up, but don't see the need to do a season pass. A day ticket is $87 any day, any age. So it's only 12 more dollars to buy the season pass, but do you, and you just said you were committed to the $99 season pass concept, Lonnie. Do you see a day where your single day lift ticket costs more than your season pass? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I, I think we're not that far away from going to be at the $99 number within, you know, three to four years. And, you know, I was taught by some really smart guys that ran the Portland Trailblazers when I was up in Canada, uh, John Spolstra and Doug Piper. And they taught me that reward your season ticket holders. They are your lifeblood. They deserve to be treated better than the guy who decides to walk up and buy a day ticket who, who may never have showed up where your season ticket holders are committing to you for a full football season or a full ski season. They are the ones to be cherished and protected. And so that that's a theory I've taken into the ski business that those are our lifeblood. And, and um, yeah, the, the day pass, you know, it's going to keep going higher because those are the people who can't commit to us. They're going to be treated differently than the people who are with us in early December. And they are treated well. Not only does a season pass get you unlimited Mount Bohemia, but you have a really impressive reciprocal ticket network. So if you buy a season pass at Mount Bohemia, you also get lift tickets at a bunch of ski areas in Michigan, Porcupine Mountains, Crystal, Ski Brule is another one you just signed. Whitecap Mountain right across the border in Wisconsin. And there's some big ski areas out west, Great Divide, Brundage, Bogus Basin, Mission Ridge. And if you're, you're hearing those names saying, oh, I've, I've never heard of those. It must be little places. Look at the acreage. Look at the vertical. These are serious ski areas. Talk about that reciprocal network, Lonnie, and how popular that is, both with your season pass holders. And do you see curious folks from Montana, Idaho, Wyoming say, what is this Bohemia place and making that roadie east to Michigan? Yeah, it's funny you ask that question. We have a group of skiers from Wyoming, a ski race academy. They're coming to us for four days in February because of the reciprocal deal. They got free skiing, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're either coming. I'm trying to where they're coming from, which place in Wyoming. But yeah, they've already got the they already got the deal because of their ski resort, and they're going to be coming down. They're flying in to Chicago and then bussing up to us, mm-hmm. and. They're coming in because of the reciprocal deal. But yeah, we don't see thousands from Montana. Let's you know be realistic. But we do see pockets coming in now. But more so, our customers bring a lot of energy and mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of social media presence to these places out west like Brundage or Great Divide or um, 
um, Bogus Basin. And so what those places get is they get a lot of skiers from the Midwest who might have gone to Breckenridge or gone to Copper Mountain, both great places too. But they, they're going to these places because it's driving them there free. And then they're going to spend money in the bar and the food and the merchandise. But they may never have gone to Great Divide in the first place. They may never have gone to Bogus Basin in the first place. But Great Divide and Bogus Basin, as you know, are two phenomenal places. They're just not quite as well known, of course, as a, as a Breckenridge. And so the reciprocal works great. It brings energy to our partners, but it also gives value to our Bohemia customers who a lot of them ski 40 to 50 days a year. And that's the biggest difference of the Bohemia community versus a normal ski resort in the Midwest is our people, our skiers and snowboarders first. And a lot of other ski resorts, their customers are vacationers first and they happen to ski a couple times a year and they happen to go on cruises a couple times a year and they might go to Disney once a year. But we have a very, as you can imagine, a very unique brand of customer and it brings a lot of energy when they go to other ski resorts. I do have to ask you here, Lonnie, about the Indy Pass. And my, my suspicion is that Indy Pass would not work for Bohemia because it would kind of have the potential of breaking that discount season pass model. But what are your thoughts on the Indy Pass? Have you ever had a conversation with Doug Fish and considered that product for Bohemia? I think it's a great concept. I think Doug Fish has done a great job and it's a great, I recommend people buy it. I mean, it's a great, it's a great deal. Um, and I love the resorts on there are phenomenal, interesting places. Um, you know, we haven't had any serious conversations with Doug about it. Um, you know, I'm not sure it works for Doug or for us because of our price point, because obviously people could cherry pick Bohemia and then buy Doug's, Doug's pass. But I think, I think all these things go back to the concept we talked about at the beginning of your program is that the ski industry is moving towards a, you know, it's what's called the Indy Pass, the season pass. It's moving towards a pre-bought season ticket of some sort, mm-hmm. whether it's Icon or the Indy or the Bohemia Pass versus daily sales. It is much different, as you know, than the industry in 2000 where virtually nobody, even the guys, the less Otten guys, um, and I'm picking the name now what they were called back then. Um, the American Skiing Company? Yeah, yeah. The American Ski Company, publicly traded. They had like 15 resorts, but the but the, the passes weren't really interchangeable. And they were charging like $1,800 for a season pass. American right. Ski Company blew it. They should have done what Vail and Icon did was make it affordable to go to a bunch of their places. And then you're going to stay in their hotels, eat their mm-hmm. food, et cetera. So the Indy Pass is a great product. Um, not sure we, we're compatible for what they're trying to accomplish. But it's a great product, and it relates to the fact that this is the direction of the industry. So let's talk about FastPass for a minute here, Lonnie. You brought back the FastPass at Bohemia this year. That's a, a, a lane like you would have at Cedar Point or Six Flags, where if you have this pass, you can go ahead and cut the line. You only have 35 of them for, for season pass holders. You can get it's $275 for the season. Um, you'll sell 50 per day for $25 per day. Talk about your decision to bring back the fast pass and what the reception has been like so far. So yeah, the fast pass, the people that we, the people that bought it the year one loved it, but the non-local people who, who come up for five days of the year, they wanted to be able to buy the fast pass. So we've kind of altered the fast pass. 
we've kind of said we really don't want to sell a, a year-long fast pass. Um, so we've kind of raised that price up dramatically. And we've gone to a $25 a day fast pass to anyone who wants to own that on a say a powder day and wants to skip the lines. And it's it's a concept you're gonna see a lot more in the ski industry. You know, it's it's common at Disney World, at Cedar Point, but you're gonna see it more and more come come to the ski industry for those who want to pay a little extra. And we think it's a great little product that somebody who's got limited time or let's say limited patience um, will pay a little extra to um, to save on on wait time. Why did you take it away before? And what has the reaction been like so far? Have you heard some grumbling about this? So just to clarify, we we didn't take it away. We took away the year long one. Hmm. Summer, we said we're getting rid of the year long one. Then we had a bunch of grumbling. So we brought it back at a much increased price to satisfy the people who, who want the year-long fast pass. We wanted to do what Disney does, which is you don't sell a year-long fast pass. That's because that doesn't work because you're not really utilizing your fast pass line efficiently because you may only have seven guys in a fast pass line, but yet none of your day buyers can buy it because you don't know how many of your year-long fast pass buyers will show up. That's why we're limiting the number to just 35 because mm -hmm. that way we know our capacity allows us to sell 40 to 50 fast passes to other people. What do you think the, the upper limit is until you start to alienate the people who don't want to or can't afford that extra little bit? You know, we got to be very careful because it, it's a good question because we have to be very careful that Bohemia is about being a place for all people who are advanced and expert skiers. Mm -hmm. We don't care whether you're rich or poor, you know, ski slow or ski fast. As long as you love skiing and are good at it, we want you there. So we got to be careful. We don't become like, you know, in the, like the, you know, we're not going to be a dare Valley, nor do we want to be what they're, what they are, because that's not, that's not who Bohemia is. So the fast pass is a little bit of a brand, a little bit off brand, but it also gives the powder pigs, let's call them the really the ability to really experience that phenomenal powder day by paying a little bit extra. So, you know, the idea is, is I don't know the answer, but I think it's, it's maybe up to a hundred because if you see 30 guys in line, that's kind of be a little bit too many. If they're all in line at one time, it's going to be a little bit too much for people in the regular lines. Um, so we want to make sure it doesn't become like distasteful. So it's, it's, a, it's a difficult product. It's a cool product, but it's also difficult in that it is, it is a little bit off brand for us. All right. Let's talk about the mountain here, Lonnie. You, you touched on your lift fleet earlier. So you mentioned, let's start with that front side lift, that triple chair, which from my understanding, the last I heard, you could only load two folks onto that. So is that the case that you can only load two folks onto that triple? If so, why? And what would you like to upgrade that chair to? Yep. So, so first off, just to give you an update, the lift passed its load test literally two days ago as a three chair lift. Nice. So the, the problem is we've been trying to explain this for 10 years now is yes, it works great as a three person lift. If you had normal ski demographics, mm -hmm. picture an elevator that's designed for 30 people. Mm -hmm. They do not design the 30 person elevator for all 400 pound people getting on the elevator at one time that that just the 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 the, the, the statistical chance of that happening is one in a billion mm -hmm. the problem we have is 
the chairlifts are designed for 170 pounds times three people. Mm-hmm. Bohemia has no children virtually. Mm-hmm. It has, for better or worse, it has very little females. You've probably seen that in our people's comments on Instagram. Mm-hmm. So we have a bunch of guys, and I'm not a big guy, and I'm mm-hmm. 165. Mm-hmm. Most guys are over the weight of 170 right off the bat. So you've got this enormous amount of weight on a fully loaded chair. And so occasionally on powder days when there was more friction, the amperage would heat up. And so that would cause the lift to do a safety shutdown. So then we'd have to restart it up and go on from there. But we realized you load it as a two-person lift, problem goes away. Because Mm -hmm. now your weight of two guys, even at 200 pounds a piece, is 400, well under the three times 170. So it's just nobody designed a lift that was planned for all male adult skiers mm-hmm. back back in the years these lifts were built so how were you able to solve that problem and get it back up to a three-person capacity no no it, it tests out at three people because we okay. load the bucket at 170 170 pounds per bucket so what i'm saying to you is it can like in the fall we run it as a three-person lift mm-hmm. all fall when we run it in the fall, the lift runs as a three-person lift. In the summer, in the winter, we run it as a two-person lift because of the weight capacity of all adult males. And mm-hmm. it runs perfectly that way. We are looking to change out that lift in the near future. And we are talking with companies like Skytrack about mm-hmm. a new three-person fixed grip um, mm-hmm. in that spot, hopefully in the next couple of years. Would you look at a carpet load, Lonnie, to increase the line speed? We've not, and we don't think we really need that because I don't think we really need to run the lift any faster. I think that, you know, we just need to make it a three and then we get rid of a lot of our, our, let's say short lift lines on Saturdays. You know, I try not to complicate the business. My worry is, um, that's just more maintenance, more things to think about. And, um, as this one guy, when I was up in Canada, once said to me, don't have too many balls up in the air. Mm-hmm. What about the uh, two-person, the double chair on the backside? Are you happy with that one? Yeah, knocking wood, that one, um, it moves its weight fine. It's never had the issues. It doesn't get the same volume as mm-hmm. the triple. And, and the reason behind that is, is our bus system is so efficient with four buses on weekends that most people are taking the buses back to the front side mm. versus being down to the double because the double only services a small amount of train where the triple services probably three times as much train as the double does. You also mentioned that you would like to put a lift back on Haunted Valley. What have you considered for a lift back there and when could we see one? So it's, it's real possible that the, the front side lift would move to mm-hmm. the Haunted Valley when it comes out and then the Skytrack lift or whichever lift we go with goes into the front side. So it, we would move that lift possibly over to the Haunted Valley side and um, we'd ski all the way to the bottom, and it would make the Haunted Valley much better for snowboarders because right now they got to hit a traverse to get back. And this way, it would, it would just ski way better. And the Haunted Valley facing due north, it's got good snow in early May almost every year. Wow. Do you have a timeline for us, Lonnie, in, in the most optimistic scenario when we could see those new lifts? Yeah. I mean, the new lift, um, depending on the season we have this year, the new lift is – I would say next 24 to 36 months. Amazing. 
How about outer limits? Would you like to see a lift over there? We actually have looked at that. It's it's a long lift. Uh, you know, if you don't, if you only go a part of the vertical, it's 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 not so bad. But if you went from the very bottom to the top of Bohemia, um, you're looking at a extremely long lift span that would take probably 15 minutes to get to the top. Mm. So that's the one drawback from that is just the the mental time of riding that lift that long but we have looked at it and um in the future it might go part way up it might go up to the top of say jupiter mm -hmm. and and not go all the way to the top and you'd see just those runs um the, you know the lower two-thirds of it so that that's one idea we've thought of we've also um looked at a lift if we need the capacity just to the left of tommy knockers looking up the hill um, that would give us two lifts on the front side. So that's still a scenario we, we do look at. And, um, and then, of course, there's a lift, you know, there's still a lift idea for Little Boho. You know, Little Boho is, is behind our parking lot. And we, we, we have considered putting a lift over there in the long term. Um, we just want to work out some agreements with the homeowners because mm -hmm. what we envision is skiing through those homeowners' backyards mm. uh, to, make it, to make Little Boho fully skiable. It would be kind of like a European-type experience. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that is on the horizon. So right now with little boho to set this up for the listeners, you climb up from the parking lot and then you ski down a different face. So where do you envision that lift going and how would you get there from the parking lot? Yeah. So you, so the lift would be, we own a bunch of property at the bottom of little boho. We just don't, we don't own the whole width of the mountain. That's mm -hmm. the, we don't own the whole width of the bottom of the mountain. We own the whole mountain, but the very bottom, the run out, there's a bunch of homes, but we have about 400 feet of property at the bottom or 500 feet of property at the bottom. That's all us. That's where the lift would go. The lift would go to the top. So coming from the parking lot, you would ski down the little access trail, mm -hmm. the lower half of little boho to get to the lift, then ride the lift to the top. And then could you ski back down to the parking lot from there? You could actually. Yeah, no, I think you could actually, there's a, we could cut a run. We had to cut a run, but you could ski from the top of that lift it'd be a shorter run, but you could ski right back to the parking lot. You know, the other option of course is we would have a bus pick you up at the bottom of Little Boho. And what kind of lift are you looking for over there? Are, are you thinking a double chair, a T-bar? Like what, what do you have in mind? Um, it likely wouldn't be a surface lift because it's just so steep. Mm -hmm. I mean, a surface lift would be great. Just, it just, it's, there's two problems with surface lift. Number one is we don't groom. So right. the problem with surface lift is you get a foot of snow. You've got a groomer. You're going to be able to fall on left and right on in a foot of powder. So you need to groom it. Secondly, little boho is actually some of the steepest train at Bohemia is the bottom half of little boho. It's mm. really, really steep. And so we would look to possibly relocate the double long-term over there, mm -hmm. put the triple over in Haunted Valley and put a new lift where the double is. That's, that's mm. probably the scenarios how things would, would play out. And if you replace the double that's on the backside of, of, the main mountain now at Bear Den, would you, would that just be a newer double or, or would you want a triple there? What do you have in mind? Probably do a triple if you're going to, I mean, not, you know, not that it's that crazy over there, but probably a triple because the cost difference is, is really minimal. What is the vertical drop on Little Boho? Little Boho is about 310 feet. So mm -hmm. it's not huge, but if you take Midwest ski hills, there's a lot of hills that have 300 foot verticals for part of their terrain. And I'll tell you what, Little Boho skis really good. And it, the big thing of it is, it's when the, when Bohemia is skied out, 
you go over there and you find more powder. And once again, it's all about terrain, terrain, and more terrain. So let's talk about terrain because you, it seems like you've been adding a little bit of terrain almost every year for the past 22 years. What's the full potential here, Lonnie? Play this out for us. You considering the land that you own, the land that's adjacent to Bohemia, if your ambitions can match your, if you can realize your ambitions, what would Bohemia look like at full build out? So we have some room um, to the west to build some more ski terrain. We've got to wrestle with how it disrupts our snowshoe trails that crisscross it. Um, but we definitely have some terrain on the west side. We could add a bunch more terrain. We also have some possible northwest terrain, and that's located between Outback and Haunted Valley. There's, a, there's another spot there that kind of goes down into a hole. That could be a surface lift. If we, if we decided to groom or have a groomer, that could work as a surface lift area on the northwest side. The big area for expansion is Voodoo Mountain, which is our snowcat ski resort. And mm-hmm. Voodoo is the largest by terrain of any ski resort. I mean, that thing is in the Midwest. That thing is, I think it's three miles wide. Wow. Um, it's four peaks. We've only developed part of the first two peaks so far. That thing was designed by Snow Engineering in the 1970s to have 22 chairlifts. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it, it, it's enormous. And right now we're using it as snowcat skiing. And that's our, that's our current plan going forward. But the world, as the world changes, you change with it. But right now, the snowcat skiing is doing really well for us. And um, we're looking just to expand snowcat skiing in, in the meantime and keep it as a snowcat resort for now. But it's got plenty of room for terrain expansion. Do you own that land at Voodoo? We lease Voodoo Mountain. So, Okay. So what would it take to, to see a lift over there? Would Bohemia have to reach capacity volume-wise? Is, is it a matter of money? What would that take? So it's a couple things. Number one is we really like the concept of snowcat skiing. It's, it, it makes voodoo – it's why voodoo's special. You know, voodoo's terrain is good, but it's not special like Bohemia's. It doesn't, it doesn't quite have that same, you know, Rocky Mountain feel. But it's, it's very fun terrain. But we like selling that snowcat experience of powder with your best friends and nobody else. And so <clears throat> we're not sure we want to commercialize it with chairlifts at this time. We kind of like just to see it expand as a snowcat resort. And yeah, maybe we leave some money on the table, but it's, it's back to our brand of, of adventure, wilderness, and escape. And Voodoo really does hit those three points as a snowcat operation. What's the vertical drop on Voodoo? Voodoo is about 700. So it's, okay. it's big for Midwest, but it's not as big as Bohemia. It gets very similar snowfall mm-hmm. that Bohemia gets. It does face, besides two of its runs, it faces due north. So in the springtime, it has phenomenal conditions because it's getting, it's getting no melting on the north side. So you know, going back to our conversation earlier about Bluebird, could you envision as, as an intermediary step between chairlift skiing and cat skiing, a sort of Bluebird backcountry style experience at Voodoo Mountain? Yeah, that's actually, that's something that we have talked about in, in, in conversations about, hey, we could expand 
Voodoo's numbers um, by opening up maybe one peak that's just for climbers. The, the problem we have is we can't figure out how we would control it. Like, how do you have paid for snowcat, ski, snowcat skiing over here and then keep the, keep the people hiking the mountain from wandering over to the snowcat area? Like, how do you, you, know, you, you can't build fences. You're not going to build fences mm-hmm. for a mile. So we, we haven't quite figured out how we can mix the two um, properly, but it's definitely a concept that's on our radar. So this is kind of an absurd question, but I'll ask it because this is where my brain goes when I see this kind of thing. So Voodoo and Bohemia are about four miles apart. Looks like all wilderness in between. What is that terrain like in between? Could a person do a backcountry ski between if they wanted? And, and as silly as it sounds, in Vermont, you can ski from Bolton Valley to Stowe, which which as the crow flies are not that far apart, but to drive takes, you know, about an hour. So is that is that something that's possible in, in who does own all that land in between and what is the terrain like? The timber company owns all the land in between. Um, it's pretty rugged terrain. It's, there is, there is a trail that you could do, which is a snowmobile trail. The problem is you might get run over. <laughs> so there is a, there's a way to get there, but there's a trail already cleared out, which we take our snow get on that. Um, my worry is you'd get run over, but if you went through the woods, you'd be going through some pretty thick woods, you know, that, the flavor points wouldn't be there for that much work. It, it wouldn't be worth mm-hmm. the work to do that. But, you know, it's not to say we couldn't bring you there by snowcat and drop you off and then bring the next group. So there is, there is a way to do this a la Bluebird. But the, the problem for us is more, you know, guys are paying us $175 a day for private skiing. Then you got some guy hiking the hill, wandering under their slopes. Mm-hmm. That's where the conflict's going to come. All right. Anything new at Bohemia this year, terrain-wise? We're adding a couple of glades in the outer limits. Mm-hmm. Uh, one near the very top. Um, it'll be called Fireball, and it, it's just it's just going to the left of of uh, Neptune, and then it launches onto onto Pluto. And then we have two runs in the bottom third. We're opening up more runs at the very bottom third of outer limits. All these are glades, and all of them come out to the bus. So talk about your glading process a little bit, because if you if you actually, if you look, if you go on Google Maps and you do an overhead view of Mount Bohemia, it doesn't look like much. It's just a few runs. But if you look at your trail map, you have somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 runs. Most of the skiing is gladed. And if you look at the trail map, you kind of have them artificially widened just for to show people where they are. But talk about that process of glading, because I, I believe it's a very meticulous system that you have in place. It is. Uh, Steve Rowe who is the original guy that, that designed the trails. Uh, he's cut most of the trails at Bohemia besides the, the recent few new ones. And he's like an artist. And he, like he and I have talked, you really can't build glade runs properly if you're not a skier or a yeah. snowboarder because mm-hmm. you can't visualize the lanes. You know, I don't know how to build glade runs. We utilize Steve Rowe because Steve has the right vision. He's phenomenal at it. And he just builds it out. You want to cut down, you want to cut down the little trees, leaving the big trees, but know where the snow is going to fall, know where the wind's going to blow. It's a whole, it's a whole concept. And I would say to people looking to build glades, hire guys that are artists that understand this versus just tree cutters. And how hard is it not only to build them, but to maintain them, Lonnie? What kind of effort does that take every single year? Because you have just hundreds and hundreds of acres of glades. We have a crew of four. 
every summer and they're still going as we speak. And we're in the month of October. Mm-hmm. These guys go right to the middle of November, you know, when hunting season starts. It, it, it that's the one thing about glades is the more you build, the more you got to maintain them. And, and that's an never ending process. But once again, we're, we're selling ski terrain. Therefore we got to maintain it. So let's talk about that terrain a little bit and, and help us build context. Cause it sounds like you've skied around quite a bit. So you understand what black diamond means out West and you understand what it means in new England and what it means in Michigan. The extreme backcountry at Bohemia is labeled as triple black diamond. You set this context up for us. Line. What kind of what will we find? What will a skier find if they go back into the extreme backcountry? As far as steepness, as far as glades, as far as cliffs, what are you getting yourself into? Okay, so if you, if you go on certain runs like Woodpecker's Hollow and and Brown Beagle and Enchanted Forest, you're going to get some nice, nicely pitched long glade runs. But if you go further into the center, Horseshoe Shoot, Apex Shoot, Slide Path. You're now starting to deal with some significant cliffs and shoots and collars. I mean, you're talking about very technical terrain mm-hmm. that's above the head of most people. And you're talking about terrain you're going to find in, in the serious places out west that, that they call it very difficult terrain. So we labeled it triple black because we wanted the Midwest customer to understand this is not your normal double black run at, at a Midwest ski hill. This is different. And once you're in our backcountry, you're kind of in there. You can't just ski out. It's, it's over a half mile wide. Once you're mm-hmm. in there, you're going to be in there for, for quite a while. No, there's no like just way just to walk out of it. <laughs> so it's a mixture. It's a mixture of, of long glades like Enchanted Forest, Brown Beagle, like I said. And then there's some very technical stuff that a lot of people love. But, you know, it's not recommended for everybody. If you're not sure, I, I would say not to do the cliffs or the shoots. And how self-regulating have Bohemia skiers been, just given that this is the Midwest, some skiers may not have the context of what this kind of terrain really is and what it's like to ski it. Well, knock on wood, well, we have a, we have a, we have a sign that says reckless behavior can kill you at Bohemia. And we, we mm-hmm. mean that in all sadness and seriousness. Um, our skiers have actually been really responsible. Knock on wood, you know, we really haven't had a lot of bad injuries in the backcountry in 23 years. Wow. I think because we warn people and our customers are not bored. You mentioned boredom earlier. Mm-hmm. When people are not bored and they're naturally challenged, they take things more seriously and they don't act as recklessly and foolishly. And so we really, knock on wood, we haven't had a lot of problems in the backcountry at all. So, you know, one thing that helps you not be bored as a ski area is lots of snow to play with. And you have plenty of that at Bohemia. It's hard to understand the power of the lake effect snow that you get there. You're really hanging out there. If the listeners aren't looking at a map, they should look. This is literally hanging out in the middle of Lake Superior. Just talk about the power of the lake effect band that you get and how much snow that actually brings to you and, and the way it falls. Because you don't get these like two feet at a time as much as they would get in like Little Cottonwood Canyon. It's, it's really a different sort of snow pattern, isn't it? It is. A typical January, we will get snow in a typical January, 26 days out of 31, measurable snow. So that means that means between two and eight inches every day, Mm -hmm. like say five days of the week. You're right. right. It's it's very unlikely in January we're gonna get a three-foot dunk, but it's also very unlikely we're gonna go more than three days without getting snowfall. And so many years you can go to sleep at night 
and the lake effect rolls in around two in the morning. It dumps three to four inches. You wake up on your car, fresh snow. Mm -hmm. And we get used to it as normal. We don't realize how lucky, as long as I tell our staff guys, you don't realize how lucky we are. You know, usually we're in the midst of a, say, a, a 25 straight day cycle of fresh snow. And an employee will walk in and say, oh man, we only got two inches of snow last night. And I'll be <laughs> like, guys, in most places, they're only going to get 80 inches the whole year. Right. We're getting 80 inches in 14 days and consider it normal. We are really lucky. And, and, and we think it's better. It's not as dry as Utah. Utah mm -hmm. is the best snow, but it's drier for sure than Lake Tahoe. And it's pretty close to Colorado powder. Lake effect is actually pretty dry snow. Not, not Utah level, but, but, but very close to Colorado. But what's nice about us is if you're there for four days, you're not going to have just one big powder dump like you do in Colorado and then sunshine. You got, you got a chance of having powder each morning you go skiing, which means that there's always a chance to get fresh tracks. In, another thing that Bohemia has going for it is you don't really get the rain and the freeze thaws like they do in Vermont. I mentioned Mad River Glen earlier, and the reality is that would not be a sustainable business without grooming because they do get freeze thaws quite a bit just based on their altitude and just where they are in the world. How does that work to your advantage? How often do you actually get freeze thaws and, and how well does that allow you to maintain a good quality snow? Yeah. So the biz, Bohemia business model is, we think is a phenomenal model, but it has limitations to where you can put it. And I used to live, as, you, as we talked earlier, in Ottawa, which means I can go skiing in Vermont in a couple hours. Mm -hmm. uh, but the problem in Vermont, I saw blue, I saw blue ice. I mean, I saw real blue ice in Killington. I've never seen blue ice in Midwest. I mean, this, this was true ice. Um, the problem I was in Killington for a week was we had two days in the forties, two days in the teens mm -hmm. and two days in the thirties. And so you got your, right, it's a constant freeze thaw cycle out there. Um, we get a little bit of that in the month of March, mm -hmm. knock wood. We might get two warm days in January, but usually on the back end, the temperature dives, the pattern changes and we get eight inches of fresh snow that cleans things up. So mm -hmm. the nice thing about getting two to eight inches every day or every other day in the wintertime is that you're constantly cleaning up if you do get a thaw. And that's the difference between us and the East is they're mostly relying on storms. So they might not get a storm for two weeks and the freeze thaw has wrecked their, um, has wrecked their, their, their base. So you have the perfect climate for it. When the snow comes, it can come 321 inches last year. Rewind to the season before, however, and you weren't able to open until January 27th. You closed on March 21st. That's a 53-day season. I realize that's part of the gig, but as you look long-term, do you think that Bohemia will ever need a snowmaking system just as a sort of insurance to have at least a couple runs going? We've looked into it. We've talked to SMI that's based actually in Midland, Michigan. Um, you know, we have a plan in place if it ever comes to that of what we would do. Um, but we, we really don't, you know, we don't want to be too optimistic, but the forecasters that we use for our weather, and they've been doing our weather since 2003, um, they say climate change is real, um, but it's affecting the oceans way more than the Great Lakes. Mm -hmm. And we are actually averaging more snow 
the last 10 years than we did our first 13 years. So our mm. snowfall is going up. We are getting a little bit more warm patterns early season, but late season, we've skied May on uh, the past 10 years. We've skied May three times in the past 10 years. We've gotten over 300 inches, three of the last four or five seasons, over 300 inches of snow. So our forecaster doesn't see um, more or less snow in the future. He does see a little bit of vulnerability in the month of December, which we have been seeing. And, um, and of course, that year you're talking about was our worst, was our worst year on record for, for snowfall and, and weather. In general, though, you are able to, as you said, make it to May. You made it to May 1st in 2022. You have a kind of a neat bet with Boyne Mountain each spring, and I'll let you lay out the details of that. But Boyne Mountain, just to make this point, has one of the best snowmaking systems probably on the planet, I would say. And they, they, are, they are very sophisticated with it. They put a lot of money into it. And yet you still beat them last year. And they had some other things going on and they wanted to close. But, but lay out that bet that you have with Boyne Mountain each year. Um, and, and what that says, just the fact that you can win that with no snowmaking versus their Titanic snowmaking, what that really says about how unique Bohemia is. Yeah. I mean, you know, our North facing slopes in the Hunter Valley, I mean, they really do retain snow for a long time. And we, we, we do get, you know, we do get in the 300 inch range in normal years and we don't get a lot of sunshine. So, you know, one of the pros or cons of Bohemia is you're not going to get a lot of sunshine there, but that, that helps maintain our snow. And then the fact that we constantly get it in increments helps layer up our snow, which makes our base, our base underneath stronger to melting. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we, we have a real chance. We've skied April on natural snow in the Midwest. We've skied April, I think 17 out of 23 years, maybe it's 18 out of 23 years, but definitely 17 for sure. So we've only had like five or six years where we didn't ski April on a place that doesn't make any snow. So we do do a bet with those guys. The winner, the loser donates thousand dollars to the charity of, of the other ski resorts choice. And, um, and then like I say, they do a great job at making the snow. We just have an advantage in that, in that we're just cooler. We stay that Lake mm-hmm. at the end of the year, that Lake surrounds us. It keeps us a few degrees colder than places South of us. I mean, Houghton, Houghton is 45 minutes South of Bohemia. On, on a warm April spring day, Houghton could be 45 degrees and Bohemia is 36 because the winds off the lake naturally cool us down, which helps preserve our snow. Wow. I want to ask you real quick here about, you mentioned you had up to 245 beds at the base of Bohemia now, and you have those famous yurts and you have this giant hot tub. Talk about the the infrastructure you have built up at the base for people to stay now and and do things in off hours like that hot tub and, and how that stacks up against your ambition and how much you want to grow out that little complex long-term. Yeah. So the North, the Nordic spa, we have two bars with the Nordic spa, which is made up of, of the hot tub, the cold pool, steam room, sauna and wood cauldron. And we're looking at, we're looking to grow out the Nordic spa. Um, we're, we're following kind of a European model there. And it's just to make sure that we also have the best apres ski as well as the best ski day. Um, in the Midwest. And it's a fun place to gather. And, and Bohemia is a community first and a ski area second. And I, I think not everybody maybe gets that part of what we're doing there. It's, it's a community. And part of a community is to hang out together 
afterwards. And our skiers um, are very social, which is why our hostel is extremely popular. And, and, and then after ski pertains to it, and, and we're more of a throwback to a 1960s European ski resort than we are to anything in North America. You mentioned that we're unique and we're maybe the most unique. We, we appreciate that, that comment. And really, someone once said to me that you guys are more, Bohemia is more like an old 1960s version of a, of a small European ski resort, the way it behaves during the ski day and the apres day. And you like to get around. You actually take groups of Bohemia skiers to Japan, to Europe. Talk a little bit about those trips and what you have planned this coming season. Yeah, we're going back to Japan. We're going, we're going to Italy again, and we go to Chile in September. Um, so part of the Bohemia community is extending it to um, ski adventure trips all over the world. And uh, we've been going to Chile since 2017. We obviously missed a, two years because of the, of the COVID lockdown. Um, but we take our groups out there and, and we ski the Dolomites and then we ski um, Niseko United in Japan. And it's, it's a great time. And um, it, it's, it's 85% Bohemia customers, 15% people who just join us, which they can. And it's, it's just part of growing the Bohemia community um, in, in trips all over the world. All right. Last thing I want to ask you about here today, Lonnie, is actually the Porcupine Mountains, which is a state-owned ski area couple hours southwest of Bohemia that you ran for a few years. So talk about Porcupine Mountains, what your vision was for that, and ultimately why you decided to pull out. Yeah, great, great question. Um, first, we, the Porkies was available for privatization. So we, we bid for it. We won the bid. We ran it for nine years. Um, it was a little bit of a clash for us because we were used to a non-grooming, advanced expert environment and of course the porkies are very family um related but we did add a lot of glades and the glades there are very popular and the conflict with the porkies is our core customers love it because they love going there on powder days and skiing in the woods porkies have got phenomenal glades mm -hmm. but the a lot of the core customers of the porkies likes a very aggressive grooming schedule so there was a little bit of a conflict there also it's just we were we were always kind of back to the word of too many balls in the air. Um, the Porkies was kind of a distraction for Bohemia, and so we really decided the best way to go was the Porkies had limited room to grow mm -hmm. um, because of its location. Because you can't really build lodging; it's in a state park, and we're like, you know, there's really not a whole lot of upside here. And let's go back to our Bohemia base. And just work on really focusing on growing that. And so we we had a way to get out of our lease after nine years. Mm -hmm. And the state was a great partner. And they gave it over to Go Give It College, who ran it for, I think, close to 10 years. And they did a, did a phenomenal job. And we partnered with them in our reciprocal. And I highly encourage people to go to the Porkies. And like I say, um, our customers still love going there. But it was just a distraction. It was a distraction with not enough upside for us to focus our time on it properly. So the last thing I want to get your reaction on here today, Lonnie, is uh, Charles Skinner, who is the longtime owner of Granite Peak in Wisconsin and Luton Mountains in Minnesota, and has built both of those up phenomenally and, and modernized them and, and continues to expand them. Recently bought one of your, I don't know if I want to call it a competitor, because I don't know if, if Bohemia really has 
true competitors. But another skier in your region, the former Indian head blackjack, which they named Big Snow, and now have, they've changed the name to Snow Basin. They've already announced some pretty aggressive plans. They're going to take out three fixed grip riblets on the Indian head side, replace that with a high speed six pack. And the new GM, Benjamin Bartz, put out a note that said, expect more glades, expect more bumps, expect more powder, expect essentially less grooming, a more interesting mountain. And I think there's very few operators in the Midwest that understand this concept on the level that you do and Charles Skinner does. I just want to step back and get your reaction to Charles Skinner buying uh, Snow River and the moves he's made so far. And if you think it's, it's good or bad for you to have another operator taking that stance in your marketplace with, hey, we want this to be an interesting mountain, more grooming, more terrain. So first off, I think, you know, they're doing all the things that we would have done had we bought it, but we, we just didn't see, we didn't see the potential. We felt you're competing against Granite Peak and Lutzen and Devil's Head and Cascade and, 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 and Spirit for the intermediate skier. So we just didn't see that that was the right distraction for us. Mm-hmm. But we're happy. Anybody that wants to teach their customers how to ski in the trees, we encourage it because they're going to be future Bohemia skiers. Once they get good, they're going to want to come to us. So we, we're excited to hear they're going more natural skiing, more ungroomed skiing, because we believe that one of the things that holds us back is people who have never skied ungroomed terrain are scared to try it. So if they can try it at Snow River or they can try it anywhere else in the Midwest, that's a future Bohemia skier. All right, Lonnie. Well, I cannot thank you enough for your time today. I, I really am so impressed with what you've built at Mount Bohemia over the past two decades. And, and I love your vision for it. And I'm, I'm glad that you have this loyal following of, of folks that are going to make this sustainable operation for a long time. So thank you so much for giving me way more time than I asked for. Uh, I'm hoping to get up there and make some turns with you this winter. So uh, hopefully we can make that happen. And thank you very much and, and hope you get even more snow than you did last year. Hey, no problem. Thank you for having me on. That's Lonnie Gleberman, founder, owner, and president of Mount Bohemia, Michigan. I mean, I don't even know what to say. Tell me you don't want to sell everything you own, buy a van, and set up residence in the Boho parking lot this winter. Lonnie just said everything that every skier ever wishes the manager of his local bump would say. No one else can do it, of course. Boho is situated in a very unique microclimate and in a very unique remote culture. But there was nothing inevitable about that place, and I continue to be amazed by its existence and to give props to Lonnie for making it all real for us to enjoy. All right, the booking machine will not stop. Added another new podcast to the lineup this week, and it is a big one. Palisades Tahoe President D. Byrne will join me on the Storm Skiing Podcast in December. Before we get there, I've already got the Bromley episode in the can. Then you are scheduled to hear from the leaders of Sundance, Point Resorts, Vail Mountain, Open Snow, SMI Snowmakers, Mount Spokane, Whitefish, Seven Springs, Eagle Crest, Holiday Valley, Pacific Group Resort, Saddleback, Whitecap, Wisconsin, Breckenridge, Deer Valley, and more. Look, stop chasing these things down on iTunes. The very fastest way to receive new Storm Skiing podcasts is to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear there several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. 
there are free and paid tiers of the newsletter and paid subscribers do receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at storm ski journal until next time. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.